Welcome back to the Knife at the Gunfight. Uh, I have a very interesting interview today with uh, Bannard Woods, a Baltimore journalist uh, who has a recent piece in the Washington Post about uh, the January 6th insurrection and its historical roots within white supremacist uprisings against uh, Reconstruction, particularly in South Carolina, where he's from. Uh, he's also the author, along with Brandon Soderbergh, of the Gun Trace Task Force, uh, True Crime History, uh, I Got a Monster, about police corruption in Baltimore. I previously interviewed him about that uh, police corruption uh, around the time of the trial a couple of years ago, so I encourage you to take a listen to that if you have any interest uh, in that topic. Unfortunately, like so much of the work we do, this interview uh, seemed dated uh, within a day or two of recording. Uh, if you listen, uh, I cite the Baltimore violence interrupter and uh, leader of Safe Streets, uh, Dante Barksdale, uh, during this recording. I think we recorded on Friday and then on Sunday, unfortunately, uh, Dante Tater Barksdale uh, was murdered in southeast Baltimore on a devastating blow to the community of Baltimore, particularly those working to end violence in the city. So we're, even though we mentioned him, we're going to gloss over that because we recorded right before his death. And for anyone uh, who hasn't read it, uh, you know, we have some book uh, music recommendations at the end, but I want to take this moment to definitely recommend uh, Dante Barksdale's memoir, Growing Up Barksdale, which can be bought at the Red Emma's website. So we'll have to address that on a, in, a, in the next episode. Uh, but for now, I hope you uh, can listen and enjoy to my interview with Baynard Woods. Feel my pain while I drink all my pain. Recognize the 2020 minute shit ain't the same. I'm the shit with a stain. I'm the gift with a brain. Bitch, I'm flipping the page. I'm a bitch in a cage. Uh. Shit, I've been through ain't made for the week, though. Uh, welcome back to the Knife at the Gunfight. I'm here with a good friend and return guest, Baynard Woods. Uh, Baynard, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm doing well. Uh, I can't imagine how how things have been for you over these months since we've last talked with with the pandemic and and I mean like real uh, frontline shit. So I hope you're doing well. Yeah, I, you know I I can't complain. Uh, there's there's a lot there that maybe I haven't talked about much. Um, certainly in the spring, I remember you were sick right when we were getting really swamped. So I think we were both going through our own uh, walk through fire. Um, but no, I'm doing well. My family is good. And only really in the last week, I've gotten back to being again a, uh, a COVID intensivist after having about half of a year where that was less and less of my practice. But, um, but no, me and, and the family. Have, uh, have you been vaccinated? Yeah, I got my second dose of the vaccine Great. about a week ago, and just a warning to people that the second dose hit me pretty hard. I probably felt like you did when you were sick, but I was only uh, feeling unwell for about a day, uh, and then uh, on the day after the vaccine, and the next day almost 100%, and hopefully uh, have some protection here so can do my job and not be anxious about it. Oh, that's great to hear. And uh, I'm good to hear that you're not having long-term effects of the virus. I know some people struggle for a while. Yeah, I, I can't even look at the stories about that stuff because it's so terrifying. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I, I appreciate you coming on the show, Baynard. I've been an admirer of your work uh, since even before we met, going back to the Baltimore City paper. Um, and uh, recently you had a piece in the Washington Post about the insurrection on January 6th that I thought was a, um, a really a thoughtful take that was based much more in the historical kind of legacy um, than, than a lot of other people uh, were offering. And basically saying that, that, and correct me if I'm wrong or add on to it, that this insurrection has kind of historical roots in uprisings, particularly you focus on South Carolina, where I think you're from, in response to Reconstruction, white supremacist uprisings in South Carolina um, in the 1800s. Is that about right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and the entire sort of southern edifice of the lost cause is the model for, for the thing that, that uh, the Trumpists and the far right have been doing, this constant aggrievement. Um, 
matched with violence that, to justify violence on your side and, and a loss that, you know, and we saw it play out elsewhere too with the, the sort of big lie in, in uh, Germany that the Versailles Treaty was a stab in the back and that they didn't really lose the war. The, the cowardice generals, uh, you know, surrendered. And, and the South had the same thing here. And, and we still... Uh, live with that. I was raised on that, and uh, but they they actively and effectively overthrew the Reconstruction regime not only in South Carolina but nationally because it was the last state to to use their language that was redeemed uh, by following exactly this playbook. They uh, well first they they murdered and assassinated countless people in elections from to keep black people from voting from. Uh, 68, 1868, that is, all the way up through 1876 when they murdered hundreds of people. The, the Hamburg massacre to keep people from voting, murdered seven black people there, hunted everyone else they could find. They got one state senator, Simon Coker. Uh, they, they took him out. They said, what's your last wish? He said, let me pray. He got on his knees. They said, you're taking too long. Shot him in the head. And they ended up being successful by... Uh, claiming that they won the election, that they clearly lost. The federal government stepped in, said, you guys lost. Uh, but they stormed the state house, ended up occupying it for months until the uh, presidential election that year between Tilden and Hayes was also undecided because of a disparity in popular votes and uh, electoral college votes and trying to send alternate slates of electors and all of that stuff that we're seeing now. And it was successful, ultimately. They... Uh, got rid of the the legitimately elected government. They installed Wade Hampton. I went to a high school named after this guy, uh, whose colors were red after his red shirts who stormed it, and gray for the Confederacy. And uh, we treat these people as heroes. And the treating of these people as heroes is one of the reasons that uh, the people were encouraged to storm the Capitol, because they see themselves in that same uh, falsely heroic light. And... You know, I, I feel like this history is really underappreciated. Um, and one thing that surprised me, and you quoted Lindsey Graham in your piece, and, and I saw the speech that uh, was quoted from. And, you know, he's he's someone who I think is morally kind of reprehensible and represents uh, a lot of the, you know, politics of the South that I find morally uh, questionable at best. But he had a... Speech said, I'm interpreting as a defense of Reconstruction and really seem to have a historical perspective and understanding of what you're talking about. Is that how you understood what he was saying? Sort of, yeah. I mean, it, it is remarkable that uh, four years ago, during the Democratic primary, right before the, the South Carolina primary, Hillary Clinton at the Democratic debate, someone asked her, who's your favorite president? And, you know, they were trying to trip her up uh, in some way because, oh, oh, my God, did she say Barack or Bill? Uh, and what she said was Abraham Lincoln. And then she went into this thing that, you know, if he wouldn't have been assassinated, we wouldn't have had the horrors of Reconstruction. And that, that's, that interpretation is called the Dunning School after the, the sort of most prominent of the doofus racists who promoted it. Um, but that was a mainstream, even Democratic Party view four years ago. And she got, I wrote about it for The Guardian and, uh, you know, Tanahasi Coates immediately sort of slammed her in the Atlantic. But uh, that was the mainstream Democratic Party view even four years ago. And so to see Lindsey Graham seeing Reconstruction as, being willing to talk about Reconstruction as a positive thing rather than as, as this period of misrule and horror is really something that that was quite remarkable. Now, what he was saying was that the problem was sending the two that both parties each sent a slate of electors, um, and that's what led to this armed uh, standoff in the state house for for a couple months. And so uh, he wasn't quite endorsing the the uh, majority rule. I mean, it's important to note that that South Carolina was a totalitarian state for a hundred years before. Uh, before the United States was ever founded, where the majority, it had a vast black majority, uh, the majority was controlled in every single aspect of their lives, you know, by uh, a very small white minority who, who were, for their own part, required by law to carry guns, 
um, because of this this great numerical imbalance. And so South Carolina has deeply, deeply, deeply anti-democratic strains uh, that that are throughout much of our country and throughout much of the South. But it's sort of the um, not only for me from being from there, but but I think because of the birthplace of secession and uh, the capital of the slaveocracy, it really is a thing that we need to reckon with. And this is all going to keep happening until we realize that we aren't just the cradle of liberty and shit that we say. We're the cradle of modern totalitarianism. Uh, you know, the, the philosopher Giorgio Agamben says the modern nomos, the modern order comes from the camp in Europe, from the concentration camp. And I, I think in America, it comes from the plantation. And we can understand so much of what we see in our country if we were willing to think, not that, but due to class is a lovely place to get married, ain't it? That we see that this is a fucking concentration camp and uh, like the root of the horror that we're still, uh, the abyss that we still need to look into. And, and one thing that I appreciated about your piece and even in our brief conversation so far is you recognizing and pointing out your family ties to that um, to that history of racism, basically. Um, I think you said that your great-great-grandfather named, uh, named a son after uh, Gray, um, who was one of these leaders of, of the uh, white supremacist revolt against Reconstruction in South Carolina. And as well, you mentioned that the high school you went to was also uh, named after one of these leaders, although... I guess whether for, you know for better or for worse, you you got thrown out of it. So maybe that was a good thing in the end. Um, and I only say that I, I, yeah. I, I, my family just just to to say what where I come from on that. My family's been in Baltimore at least part of it for generations. And my great uh, uncle, my grandfather's brother, graduated from uh, Baltimore Polytechnic Institute, where I graduated from, and he gave me his class ring before he died. And it's from 1947. Um, and it was years before I realized that that was uh, five years before integration of the school. Uh, and, and so, you know, our, our, our family histories, I, I feel like my family history is tied to the segregation of Baltimore very deeply. Uh, and so uh, I thought it was, and the same thing you're saying, if we don't appreciate our history fully, then uh, that ignorance is really toxic. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing how little we think, even when we think, oh, segregated school, oh, Jim Crow, and we kind of have these, that, but that like my father and my mother were raised as the recipients of a totalitarian regime and that was raised so that if, if a black man uh, approached them on the sidewalk, he was required to step off the sidewalk to let them pass, was, was not allowed to, to use even a last name uh, without a mister, but was not allowed to be called by mister or Ms. with an honorific. And, and the, uh, the level at which that must have warped their minds, the white people of our parents' generation's minds, and the, the lack of um, anger either from them or from us towards them mm. about, you know, the, the Germans who came in the generation after the war were, had this fury that we saw come out in the 60s against their their collaborator and, and Nazi and stuff parents. And and we, to quite to the contrary, their generations have, uh, you know, glorified these people who, who were... Uh, you know, the, the Jim Crow laws were too forceful for the Nazis. The Nazis thought that there's no way we can get away with what America's doing, not in, in slavery, but during Jim Crow, during the time that we considered ourselves the cradle of liberty and stuff. And I mean, it, it, with my family, it goes much worse. I, it, I'm writing a book actually about it now and about whiteness. But my great grandfather was involved in the assassination of a, a political um, I, I heard when I was young, back in 1995, from my dad that he had had to flee the state. My grandfather was named Hernando, and I asked why, and he said, "Well, I, from what I hear, your granddad had to, his granddad, my great granddad, had to flee the state uh, after being involved in a Klan killing of uh, wow. a black man." And that's all I knew. And so I've been researching what it is wow. that's happened there. Uh, I found a lot of other that there's a, a family. Um, that is a, a black family descended, found a family chart that's Dr. Woods plus maiden slave that's on there and a whole family descended from it. And so there, there is just 
a a heart of monstrosity. There, there's monstrosity at the very heart of of what of whiteness that we have to look at, um, or we're not only going to keep killing people of color, um, but we're going to keep killing ourselves. And and that's what struck me in reading your piece. I feel like uh, we were all looking at these images of a mob, and and one of the icons, the iconographic images, is of the um, the stars and bars, the Confederate battle flag inside the Capitol building, right, which the Confederacy basically never managed to do during the Civil War. Um, and a lot of people were looking at it and saying, you know, that's not us, they can't understand it. And I felt like the lens through which you saw it um, was, uh, was very revealing. And so I wanted to ask you, with that understanding, you know, what's a thoughtful way to, to move forward uh, in a way that, that we can, can heal and overcome that? Is that possible? I mean, the, the thing we've learned is that the only way to heal and overcome is to address, hold accountable, uh, and try to rectify. I mean, the, the, the entire strategy with, uh, you know, the... the what they used to call in congressional reports and stuff, the formerly insurrectionist states, is that we just tried to sort of uh, forgive and forget. And of course, uh, they, and, and by they, I mean us, Southern white people, never forgot. And so um, one of the things I think that people can think about doing, uh, you know, I, I was thinking about something I'm struggling with, as, as especially progressive white people, we tend to want to then focus on blackness um, because it's easier to look at blackness than at whiteness. It's easier to look at oppression of black people and overcoming of that oppression than us as the oppressors. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, I, I was thinking about when Dylan Roof, I went to Charleston right after uh, Dylan Roof massacred nine people in, in the Mother Emanuel Church. One, also an assassination of a state senator, just like they did in Reconstruction. This is one of the reasons we have to deal with this. Clemente Pinckney, the preacher there, was a state senator, and so it was as an assassination as much as a massacre. And so we look at, like, oh, did those people forgive? Did the families of the victims forgive? Did um, When I went there to report on it, I, I saw DeRay, who I knew from here. Oh, what did DeRay have to say about it? What did uh, Munir de Baja, very important voices, who, who was the head of Black Lives Matter there, who later went viral for leaping over this line and, and ripping the Confederate flag out of a guy's hand. Um, but what I didn't look at as closely, and so I missed the big picture, is the way that whiteness worked there. So mm. what we saw actually happen is Dylan Roof massacres the white mayor, uh, Ravnell, who'd been mayor since the 70s for 10 fucking terms, uh, mourns and and you know the the Black Lives Matter protest I went to was there was one person the organizer De Baja while the the Coliseum was filled with people for the white mayor so he mourned and brought everyone together and then the regular white people uh, you know I, I interviewed this guy right after and he's like well see I'm not racist because Roof is the one you know as long as we think of racists only as the people who are doing things like the guy carrying the flag at the Capitol, like Dylan Roof, then we're all absolved from being racist in the way that when Trump came in, a lot of white liberals, I think, were really relieved to see the hashtag switch from Black Lives Matter to resistance, because all you have to do is be fucking better than Trump in order to feel good about yourself. And, and hmm. so what we need to look more at is the way that whiteness works. We need to have empathy and look at the effects that that has on black people, of course, but we need to look at what we gain from that or it's never going to go away. And, you know, there's, I feel like actually your work um, really resonated a lot of different ways and at different points with what we saw in the Capitol. And um, I don't remember if I mentioned it already, but of course, uh, you and Brandon Soderbergh, another journalist from Baltimore, uh, just released um, in the last year the book, I Got a Monster, about uh, police criminality or criminality within the Baltimore Police Department. And one thing that I was struck by is, you know, how much uh, police and military and even, you know, people working for various fire departments, how much uh, individuals from police departments were in the insurrectionists. 
uh, but also how differently policing responded to this white supremacist insurrection compared to how policing responds to challenges to white supremacy. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. Go, go ahead. No, well, I, that was just a thought, and I'd like to hear how you, you respond on that. Your piece in Washington Post, I don't think, chose to focus on that, but I feel like you have an interesting perspective to speak on that. Yeah, and I, I've, I've been sort of trying to think through another. We did have something on that that we cut out, um, and, and so our, I've, been sort of, I've been sort of thinking about, um, I mean, some people have said, oh, police departments and stuff are infiltrated by white supremacists, which isn't correct because the, organiz- the organization of police is inherently white supremacist. Both, you know, historically, like my ancestors in Charleston, the slave patrols, the star badge and all that stuff comes from uh, the way that sheriff's badges and stuff look come from these slave patrols. So there is a certain historical. uh, But, you know, and and there's the book about police in Baltimore, the men of Mobtown, about early police here. And it was just the Mm. responsibility of all white men to be police in early Baltimore and before there was an official police. And I, I think we see these very disparate responses because of what we think freedom means, because what we think whiteness means, and uh, because of what we think blackness means. I mean, we, we have a country that defined freedom in the Declaration of Independence and, and uh, the Constitution, and, and subsequently as freedom for white men to be able to uh, own people, own black people, own people right. from Africa. To If, if, I, can, if uh, I can interrupt the, the you women, for just a moment. I've always... Yeah. Whenever white people talk about freedom in this country, I get a little bit um, nervous because to me, often, when white people talk about freedom, really what they mean is impunity. Yeah, exactly. So there, there's a great, I came across this passage this summer and, and uh, by this guy, Frank Wilhoyd, and he, he describes, I think, what we see both with police and with whiteness as it operated there perfectly, that um, it talks about how how... To me, it seems like both white people and police think that they're, we're supposed to be protected by the law, but not bound by the law. Right. And that other people are supposed to be bound and not protected. And that's clearly what Trump wants. That's clearly what you see, like Representative Boebert, uh, you know, refusing to go through a, a metal detector ref- to see if she's carrying a gun on the Capitol, which she's not allowed to do while she's passing laws. You see it with Trump violating the Hatch Act while he's uh, t- giving a speech about law and order. Uh, you see it with all the Capitol people citing the Second Amendment while they're violating all of these laws. We expect to be protected. We don't expect to be bound. And so that's what you see with the police officers saying, oh, they just need to have their say. But we expect black people to be bound, but not protected. And so you see the police immediately, even if they're black police, by the way, immediately way more geared up. And you see it with, you know, as as with like the J20 protests, even though most of the 200 people who were kettled there were not black, you because when white people fight for um to expand liberty of others rather than just for to increase white rights, then they also are attacked heavily by the power of whiteness in the state. And, you know, for um, there's been a lot coming out about these uh, about this insurrection. But if people haven't heard, um, there are uh, two uh, recordings of of. Uh, Friends of mine, uh, local people that uh, really did a good job. I think uh, Joe Giordano was on Ryan Harvey's podcast, Hope Dies Last, talking about his experience. Uh, he's a photojournalist from Baltimore uh, who was at the Capitol. And uh, University of Maryland uh, graduate uh, Ryan Grimm, he was a graduate student when I was at University of Maryland, is now a host of uh, one of the podcasts on uh, The Intercept, had uh, Pramila Jayapal on uh you know, as as a lawmaker who not only was uh, running for her life with a recent knee replacement, but also got COVID from most likely from the uh, Republican lawmakers who refused to wear a mask while people were, you know, holed up in uh, safe, safe, you know, safe houses, basically within the Capitol complex. So uh, just uh, some things I wanted to recommend. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, and that that's just such a horrible, heartbreaking uh the way that they are are using, I mean, 
the way that, that it's looking more and more like like Republican representatives gave tours to insurgents the day before to help them do the insurgency and essentially help them kill or attempt to kill representatives by refusing to wear masks and stuff. It's just a complete monstrosity. Yeah, and you know, I, I'm in a traditionally fairly conservative specialty, although that's changing a little bit. Um, and I just, when I... When I I haven't had a chance to, to, or I haven't taken the opportunity to, to talk politics with anybody like that. Maybe that's for my own professional protection. But I just don't understand how really intelligent people who base their lives on evidence-based practices, you know, continue to support um, things, things like, you know, a Republican Party that, that acts the way that it does. Um, but... Um, but that being said, I was going to pivot a little bit. Unless there's, is there anything else that you want to talk about um, January six and the, and the aftermath that uh, you think we haven't no, touched on I, that's really important? I mean, maybe things will come up. I mean, maybe and maybe this will be a. Uh, I mean, one thing that we we've seen a number of law enforcement officers be arrested. Uh, you know, there are Capitol police who are suspended for uh, aiding the uh, allegedly aiding the. Right. Uh, insurgents, and then there were a number of people who law enforcement officers in, involved in it. Baltimore Police Department has stated that they're not going to look into whether anyone was there, really, uh, because they respect the First Amendment rights of their police officers, which they, they've never uh, they they never respect uh, the First Amendment rights of of protesters and demonstrators here, and so uh, yeah. that I think is is worth remarking on. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I do respect it's a little bit of a fine line, maybe. Um, I think, you know, anyone had the right that I respect to go out and on the ellipse or whatever and listen to Donald Trump's ranting. You know what I mean? That That is a protected First Amendment right. But once they crossed the barricades and invaded the Capitol, I think anyone doing that, especially, you know, as, as, a, as someone taking a job that's in the, somewhat the public sphere, if I cross a line like that, um, you have to do that understanding what the consequences will be. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of uh, speculation. Um, I know people have, uh, there were some comments that were anonymously out of York, Pennsylvania, of off-duty police who were in the Capitol. And people in Baltimore know that a lot of Baltimore police officers live in southern Pennsylvania, right up 83. So there's a lot of people that, uh, a lot of suspicion that Baltimore police officers were on the Capitol. And I think it doesn't do the BPD any um, any favors to, to let that suspicion um, remain unaddressed. Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, I, I think that, uh, to address your first point real quickly, I think that one thing that especially Republicans have, have intentionally glossed over and missed about in, in all of the, uh, speeches the other day. Well, the, the Democrats were glad to see they're finally against rioting or whatever. The purpose of what you do really matters. So to even if they had stormed the Capitol in order to change some policy, I'm not inherently opposed to storming the Capitol even, you know, it's that you storm it in order to overthrow the government rather than in order to change a policy of the government is a vastly different thing. And so, um, you know, a lot of people, Democrats are, are really moved, like property destruction is always bad, which they do anyway. But like property destruction can be a necessary and useful tool of uh, social change and changing policy. But bringing armed masses to the Capitol building to overthrow the democratically, uh, the Democratic vote is, is a much different thing. So the, the ends do uh, matter. For sure. Um, and... It, it's a little bit of a pivot, although, uh, as I mentioned, I think it is connected. Um, but I do want to talk about and acknowledge uh, that your book that I mentioned, I Got a Monster, about um, basically about the Gun Trace Task Force in Baltimore, which was a, a criminal enterprise, basically a gang running out of the um, Baltimore Police Department, you know, running out of the headquarters of the Baltimore Police Department. Um, uh, which eventually, because they crossed the wrong people in another county, um, ended up having a federal investigation opened up that has led to, you can tell me how many indictments and prosecutions. Um, 
but actually, do you have a number? How many? Um, and and for people who are interested in this and haven't heard, uh, Baynard and I talked extensively about this um, in a previous podcast that I'll link to uh, at the time of the initial um, federal trial uh, related to the Gun Trace Task Force. But what what is the ultimate count? How many people? Uh, how many police officers were um, were prosecuted and convicted related to this gun trace task force? Well, initially there were seven, uh, you know, members who were actively members of the gun trace task force or had just been transferred out uh, in March of 2017 who were federally indicted. Another one shortly after that. So eight. And of those initial eight, uh, six pleaded guilty, two went to trial and, and were convicted. And these were, the case was a conspiracy uh, RICO case that's usually used to bring down uh, mobsters and such. And the enterprise, a, a RICO case requires an enterprise that, that the, is, the conspiracy is operating within is the Baltimore Police Department, which is, is remarkable. And, and uh, since then, another seven officers so 15 wow. officers have been charged uh and either pleaded guilty or been convicted um or are awaiting a trial there's two that that maybe you're not going to plead guilty that might have a trial coming up these go back some of the more recent charges are going back to in 2009 what was at the time allegedly baltimore's largest drug bust in history and they stole kilos of drugs from the guy and they sold it. Uh, but the charges were lying to the FBI about it because statute of limitations had already passed for uh, the, the stealing and dealing the drugs. Um, Wayne Jenkins, the ringleader who, whose misconduct is just uh, insane, running over a guy that was fleeing and calling another sergeant to come plant a, a BB gun on him, chasing someone that led to a murder, uh, nothing was on him, having a sergeant come and bring him an ounce of heroin to plan on the guy, breaking into countless people's houses, illegally surveilling, stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars, stealing trash bags worth of drugs during the uprising here when pharmacies were being looted, having those sold for him. Uh, you know, just extreme, extreme criminality. And his 25 years, it, it's worth noting, is the same amount of time that... Um, a drug dealer, Antonio Shropshire, who, who uh, that was the guy they were originally after. You know, it, it's worth noting that the FBI wasn't coming after dirty cops. They were coming after a black drug dealer who had sold, was selling drugs to white people in the county. Um, they got a wire up on him, and they wanted to be able to bring uh, murder cases against anyone who sells dope that leads to an overdose. That's what their aim was. So they end up getting a wiretap on this guy, and they find he's talking to a cop. They get a wiretap on that cop's phone, and they find, whoa, shit, this is huge. So it's not from the DOJ investigation of the Baltimore Police Department. It's not from investigating dirty cops that this happened. It was, it was the DOJ and the FBI and the DEA doing the thing that they do, um, prosecuting the drug war. And they happen to come across these cops who were among the biggest uh, drug dealers in the city. Yeah. Trip and fall over them, practically. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I for a while I was playing this game and I kept losing who's the next uh, Baltimore police uh, member to be uh, indicted and prosecuted. I kept betting on Dean Palmieri, who was, I, as I understood it, one of the people who came and planted evidence um, in, in one of these uh, depositions. Is that right? Um, that you were mentioning? Um, not exactly. So there, there was, it was testified at the trial. He, he was a deputy, a longtime deputy commissioner. And after the, the uprising, when the police killed Freddie Gray, um, they fired the previous commissioner, Batts, who had been trying to do some reforms and brought in uh, Kevin Davis. And the first thing he did there was uh, brought all the plainclothes guys, people like the Gun Trace Task Force, into and the police auditorium and had Palmier come up and say, uh, you know, the riot is over. Go back to doing whatever it takes to, to uh, get guns off the street. And what Palmier had done previously, he's sort of the godfather of plainclothes uh, police. And one of the cops, Jamel Ram, had shot his third person that year, uh, a guy named Sean Kennedy in the head. He, he later, his partner, Gondo, testified that he said, fuck it, I didn't want to chase him. Uh, and Palmier allegedly came and uh, coached everyone on what to say 
about that shooting and told them how to to do it. But he he didn't bring any uh, plan any evidence as far as we know. But he he was uh, in in federal testimony accused of uh, coaching the detectives on what to say. Now, well, maybe that's why I kept betting on the wrong horse. Um, but you know, the, the larger point that I w- wanted to make is that. Um, he he's no he he um as i remember resigned from the baltimore police department as all this came out but he remains in a position of influence within baltimore baltimore policing and and um even within you know thinking of public health violence uh prevention strategies and and things like that and i i think the larger question remains not only who else is going to be uh uh indicted and prosecuted within baltimore police although if you have any insight i'd love to hear it but what does this whole thing say about the institution of policing in Baltimore, the institution of the Baltimore Police Department, um, and the structure of policing, specifically in Baltimore, but also generally in the United States? I know that's a big question. No, no, it's a great question. And, and I, I mean, and I, I wasn't trying to uh, defend Palmier at all. I, I think that, um, you know, we saw with the case of Sean Souter that, Baltimore police detectives can be dead in an alley. And first, the department will use them as as a big propaganda campaign to benefit themselves. And then we'll use, um, we'll then just abandon the family and everyone else when it's not beneficial to them. The, The institution of policing is so fundamentally flawed. I mean, we, plainclothes units in particular, are the most flawed part. And I think the public doesn't really realize what that means or what they do. It's not just regular cops who wear ordinary clothes and it's not undercover guys. You know, you have patrol who are the guys in in uniforms that will come when you call them, that will respond to 911 calls. And they're the people that we see most often in in, uh, these these use of force complaints or in shootings and stuff over the past couple of years. Uh, Baltimore, we have the plain clothes, which they don't respond to anyone's calls. They don't, uh, in New York and other places, New York just tried to disband plain clothes, but much of it just means reorganizing, putting different names. Uh, but they don't respond to calls. They don't come when you, they, it's whenever you hear proactive policing. And it's war. We, we have to take the language they use about what they're doing literally. They have war rooms, war on drugs, war on guns. And they go out and drive around and look for trouble. And they are rewarded uh, when they find it, regardless of the Constitution, regardless of, and, and that's sort of what I mean by that. We, they expect like white people to be, be protected, but not bound by the law. I mean, the whole idea of uh, broken windows that, oh, we have to enforce all of these minor infractions in order to keep big things from happening. That's the exact thing they argue against every single day for police. Oh, well, you know, you have to be able to break the rules in order to get results. You have to, and so they expect to, you know, the, the Alec McGillis and then Brett Stevens interpretation of the arguments about murders coming because we're mean to police. Their argument is you can't, ex- and everyone who's against the consent decree here is you can't expect people to, to uh, follow the Constitution and policing or else everyone will murder each other. It, it's insanely broken what we think about policing, and that's partly because it's insanely broken the way we think about ourselves and our cities. That we, you know, white people used to justify uh, mass incarceration, stop and frisk, all of the sort of different versions of that through drugs, being terrified of drugs. Now that we've, we've softened on that, we justify all the exact same behaviors on the basis of guns. We are willing to let police um, basically do anything they want in East or West Baltimore because we're like, oh, well, it's a gun. And we don't question what it is that they're saying. We accept authority. Um, in that regard, too regularly, and police have been telling us, leveraging violence over us for so long that if we don't give them exactly what we want, they won't. If we're mean to them at all, if we criticize them at all, oh my God, that what we're going to see is murders. Police are a, a, you know, Biden fundamentally misunderstood police, whereas Trump understood that they aren't public servants. They are a special interest group that are out to protect and serve themselves. Uh, Stuart Schrader, a scholar at, at Johns Hopkins, has a book coming out called To Protect and Serve Themselves that I'm, I'm really excited about because I think that hits it right on the nail of, 
of what one of the big problems with policing is, is that they see themselves as, you know, brothers in blue and all of this shit. If we take what they say literally, they're telling us that they're not there to protect us, that they're there to protect themselves and, and to increase their own power. And uh, we let them do that for far too long. And, and so now it's really hard to rest these paramilitary uh, organizations that we have running roughshod over our cities out of the power that we've given them. Wow. And, and uh, you know, one of the questions I have has to do with the future of policing in Baltimore. I think the last time we spoke, there was a sense that maybe the Baltimore Police Department might be uh, in such a difficult position because of the corruption that had come out from the Gun Trace Task Force that there might be a possibility for something as radical as what happened in Camden, New Jersey, when the police chief, Scott Thompson, dissolved the department in order to remake it from scratch. Um, and it's particularly in Baltimore, where the Baltimore Police Department is, I guess, technically a state agency and so not under the control of uh, the city council or the, the city um, leadership. Because, you know, one of the things when I'm looking, when I read your book, I'm seeing all these names, you know, uh, Gladstone uh, D'Souza, who, who actually, he intervened on behalf of Jenkins and then went down over some kind of tax evasion thing, although a lot of people actually liked him. Um, someone named Clewell, who was using off-books GPS. Allers, who was a former GTTF head who, who went on to the DEA. We talked about Palmieri, who's now a consultant. There's a lot of people who have come up through this history of corruption, of of not only systemic brutalization of the people of Baltimore, but really extortion uh, and, uh, you know, uh, robbery of drug dealers and things like this that have not been federally charged, that have still have deep roots in the police department and people who were defending them who never had to answer uh, for their role in that corruption. So is there a way forward for the Baltimore Police Department uh, or even the city of Baltimore in terms of policing or even public public health kind of uh, of peacemaking um, that that is not continuing the same mistakes of the last generation. Yeah, I mean, there's a, an AC, the ACLU just put out a report on use of force complaints. And uh, my co-author, Brandon, will, has a piece out on it, um, you know, and and. Wayne Jenkins had 235 use of force complaints. So in addition to all of the other things, there's just these massive uh, backlogs of complaints. And one of the things that this thing shows is that like, that's not gone away at all. In fact, to the contrary, there are people who, there's one officer who joined right after the, the you know, riots uh, with, and has a kill or be killed tattoo and stuff and has an insane number of use of force complaints. The departments are drawing racists in uh, while already being racist are also drawing racists in. And so the, the you know, I, I'm fairly skeptical of what Camden did. Um, one of the things that happened, because one of the things they did was they joined their police department with the county, the surrounding county. And, you know, I don't know that the way that the county, uh, the racism of the county towards Baltimore, I'm not sure that that would help. And there's a lot of other, uh, you know, but it would be a way to just be able to get rid of people who are, are protected by the FOP uh, union. But I think we really need to fundamentally rethink, uh, you know, we, we wrote a story for The Intercept over the summer about um, safe streets and about violence interruption, the Cure Violence program, and the way that that really contrasts with uh, Baltimore police using an example where a, a police officer walking through um, public housing intentionally coughed on residents at the beginning of the pandemic um, while you had the, the people. And that's how they treat violence as well. And, and whereas the cure violence model sees violence as contagious. And even just once you start thinking of that, then you're able to rethink a lot of things like police in Baltimore schools. Well, if you want to deal with COVID in the schools, you're not going to bring a COVID-infected person into the schools. That's not the way that you're going to deal with COVID in schools. And that's, in fact, precisely how we deal with violence in schools, is we bring people who are infected by that violence, police officers, into the school, and then they spread that violence. And so thinking about, um, I mean, and also that, that $500 million a year budget 
to the Baltimore Police Department, takes up every uh, the money that could go to any other possible source of funding. Hogan vetoed funding to Safe Streets, the Cure Violence uh, program in the city because of the pandemic and stuff. But of course, they didn't defund BPD at all. Uh, such a small, small, small cut to not only it, did it cut nothing off of last year's budget, just a small cut to what was going to be proposed as this year's budget. And then they still grieve about we've been defunded. Uh, so we have to break their, their sense as a political power block. We have to rethink the way we think about violence. And we have to rethink the, I mean, clearly the war on drugs. As we've seen murder spikes happen, as happened here um, in 2015, all across the country, there have been just ridiculous story after ridiculous story saying that that's because uh, police are standing down. And that's because if it is because they're standing down, then they should be fucking fired immediately uh, if they're actually causing the violence. But what we saw with the GTTF is they caused these violent spikes in an active way. Yes, some people might have stood down, but GTTF was actively causing violence. They were raiding uh, constitutionally, unconstitutionally stopping People up to 50 times a night on the street, stealing their drugs, reselling those drugs. Well, what happens when that guy goes back to his plug and says, man, I don't have the money? Uh, you have all, well, where's the paperwork? The cops took it. Yeah, right. So you have all of these problems that get, uh, they would they would out snitches, people who worked with them, who would inform for them. They would then tell those people uh, who they arrested, who did it. They'd even make up lies. The guy who they uh, one of the guys they stole the cocaine from, they told him that his girlfriend had been a, an informant and it really wasn't her at all. And so they, they increased violence because violence is good for cops. That's the thing we need to understand. Hmm. That's how they wow. increase their power. And so they increased violence rather than decreased violence. And they were an active counterinsurgency. Um, but we've seen across the country drug Drug trade has been disrupted in the similar to what GTTF was doing here by COVID and by lockdowns and by. And so, like, why would we not think that violence has come up because uh, of this crazy thing that's happening that has disrupted all of our illegal trades? And when we don't have in the underground economy, when we don't have mechanisms for dealing with disputes as a result of that, that leads to violence. And so rethinking the drug war is just. I mean, is essential to it. Rethinking public safety and rethinking what we, we want or need from police and, and fundamentally taking them away from having the ability to wage war on our own citizens with our permission to do it. Because right now, that's the biggest thing is we still are willing to give them permission to do it. Wow. And uh, what's interesting is, is, you know, juxtaposition of your skepticism or even cynicism, if I can be so bold, with you know the fact that the mayor right now, uh, Brandon Scott, uh, he is you know he's of our generation. I ran high school track against him, but not only that, but he's plugged in and personally connected to a lot of the activists in the city. Right, he has uh, a, a very significant personal relationship with Erica Bridgeford from Baltimore Ceasefire, um, Dante Barksdale of Safe Streets that you just talked about is part of it was part of his transition committee is basically. Um, a consultant for for his uh, administration. Um, so uh, that that's an interesting question, and maybe one that that Ala will have to pose to uh, uh, Brandon Scott and, and people close to him of how do we transition, you know, this um, this history of violence in Baltimore. How do we work on that in a meaningful way? Uh, that that changes a lot of that trajectory that that you're so skeptical or cynical about. Yeah, and I mean Brandon is uh, the thing that worries me about Brandon, and I like him, um, and I, I like a lot of people who he's working with, and and um, but that generational thing you said, the the uh, doing the the versus kind of battles uh, with Catalina, the the cool haircut and stuff can also. Uh, make us think that he's cooler than he is on these things. And, uh, you know, my, he voted uh, to uh, confirm D'Souza without any kind of, without the proper kind of vetting at all. Um, and we knew people were saying there were problems with D'Souza. And um, so it's still the politicians are, and I'm, I'm saying this because it takes a, a 
just a tremendous amount of courage to stand up to the Baltimore Police Department in any way because of how vile and violent they are to anyone who questions and, them. And politically powerful um, through the, the FOP, the, as you mentioned. Oh, yeah. I mean, the reality is, is that every mayor rises and falls on on that sort of top line murder number at the end of the year. And the, the FOP and the commissioner and everyone else tells the mayor like, oh, if you don't, if you say this against us, you're we're going to you're screwed and we're going to have murders. And it's again, they use that that way that they leverage violence over citizens. They, they do it primarily through politicians. And so it's very hard to hear people telling you if you don't do what we say shit tons of people are going to die and say, you know what? I think you're wrong. Uh, I'm listening to Erica and Dante instead uh, of you guys. And, and, you know, I mean, we as the press have been so shitty uh, as adjuncts of the drug war for so long too. And, and like uh, almost immediately after our story about safe streets came out, there were all these stories about safe streets worker arrested and, um, you know, they, they got a guy who was supposed allegedly with safe streets. He, he had quit before he was arrested. And I think they were specifically targeting safe streets and BPD does the yeah. background checks for safe streets. And the guy was under federal investigation before he was ever hired. And so it seems to me like BPD is constantly setting up every alternative to it to fail. And that's just bad faith acting that like we need a mayor who will say like, I'm not taking this bad faith bullshit from y'all anymore. If you don't like it, you can walk the fuck out and I will bring somebody else in. And I don't know if Brandon has that kind of spine yet or not. Wow. And, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that the generational thing, uh, the city council president, Nick Mosby, was uh, I remember him running for Mr. Polly. I think he was a senior when I was a sophomore. Um and I, I, I don't, I didn't know him personally, but I, I remember that brief interaction, and I was hoping that 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 would, you know, that generational thing would mean something. But we've seen that he's kind of thrown out all of the progressive uh, city council members from, you know, their positions within um, the city council in, in terms of the committees in favor of allies and really making a him versus uh, uh, Brandon Scott um, kind of making opposition in that way. And, and we don't know what's going on in the background that, that frames that. But I, I've certainly been very disappointed in, in the loss of that opportunity between the city council and the mayor working together, like you said, not in bad faith, but in good faith um, for the health and benefit of the city. Yeah, I mean... And I'm a generation older, sort of than certainly than Brandon. I'm I'm not exactly sure how old uh, Nick is, but but you know I'm I'm getting close to fifty, and and so uh, having watched the the horror show of the baby boomers for my whole early life, and uh, I don't have the the anything like the generational hope that that uh, millennial people tend to have for their generation because. Uh, just because there's a bunch of y'all doesn't mean that you're going to be better. Like the, the boomers already did that. So uh, I, it's just numerical, like, and that you you both happen to have like a mass media platform come of age with you um, that that tends to make it think like, oh, yeah, look, everything sort of reflects us. But it's I mean, Nick is the perfect example. If Nick gave a shit, he would not put the city through having the kind of conflict of interest that he's putting the city through having by having his wife be the state's attorney. Um, and him be city council president. He would he would check his own ego for a fucking second and think about the city. But uh, you know, the, both of those two have such and and you know, I mean, th there's something flawed with anyone who wants to to go to especially high. You know, anyone who wants to be president is inherently fucked up. Like the fact that you want that means there's something wrong with you. You're deeply <laughs> broken somewhere and somehow. And uh, you know, there's just no no decent ordinary person says like I'm the one who's gonna save everything. Like you gotta have an ego that, and so like, but Nick is is am with all of these these personal finance questions and their their travel agency and their tra their tax liens. Man, it's gonna be a, a another sort of. Uh, I'm not looking forward to seeing the way the the. 
uh, next couple of years play yeah, out with those two. You know, it's it's a shame. I went from being very enthusiastic with Brandon to now being uh, to much less so as as all of this took shape. But um, uh, I know you have oh, good. I thought you were saying that after this conversation. No, no, like, not just this conversation. No, when to, when when I saw, didn't mean to ruin your optimism. No, you know, and and that was the point I was making when I saw Nick Mosby really like put his put his power up and throw down against everyone that was a Brandon Scott ally, I, my heart sank. You know what I mean? I thought I thought we were about to do something different. And then I, I just saw that the city was about to, to do battle against itself uh, in a way that's just not productive. And, uh, you know, what can we do? We just got to keep working. Um, but I know you, uh, you have some things to do, some places to be, and this is beyond the scope of what I had hoped to have you on the uh, podcast for. But I, before I let you go, I want to put you on the spot. Now, obviously, we're, uh, I want everyone out there to uh, seriously look up and consider buying, buying your book, I Got a Monster. Uh, we didn't even talk about it from a literary perspective, but I have to say that I appreciate how the book uh, is basically a true crime novel or a true crime uh, uh, nonfiction piece that flips the whole genre on its head and has the police as the suspects and the defense attorneys as the investigators. Um, I think that is, that is really brilliant. It's a very um, compelling read. Uh, it reads very quickly. You know, you can read, you know, somewhere between 20 and 100 pages a day, depending how much you want um, to put into it. But beyond your own book, what, what either uh, book or music or other work of art or performance um, that you want to shine a light on so that me and my audience can, can look at. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate what you said about the style of the book. We really tried hard to make what was going to be an anti-racist and anti-fascist uh, thriller and to be really factually rigorous yeah. but have scenes and stuff. And so I'm, I'm, uh, I appreciate you noticing that. And I mean, there... Uh, there are so many books that I loved that came out this year. I ended up reading a lot. Uh, a couple that, that one that I just read that I thought was so great was Yule Abyss's book, Having and Being Had. It sort of asks, is it possible wow. to be an ethical person in, in capitalism? Um, and I thought it was just, uh, it, it's written in these really short, fast. I, I read it super quick. Uh, her, her first book, No Man, Notes from No Man's Land, is great. Also, uh, looking at the language around gentrifying, uh, you know, and, and pioneers and stuff and comparing that with Little House on the Prairie. And it's just uh, spectacular. But um, Talia Lavin's book I've been thinking about a lot the last couple of days, Culture Warlords, that's about the far right, um, I thought was really a, a remarkable book. And in terms of style and... Uh, you know, just it blew me away of, of its innovation. Afro-Pessimism by Frank Wilkerson was uh, hmm. is part memoir and part theory and part like me, like really challenging meditation on, on what blackness means and how it functions in our society. And it, it just was uh, was kind of heartbreaking. And, and uh, you know, and, and maybe another, the other side of that, uh, there's a great book, The Brother You Choose, um, that's conversations between Paul Coates, uh, who owns Black Classic Press, and is Ta-Nehisi's dad, and Eddie Conway, the longtime political prisoner in Black Panther, and uh, now at Real News, um, after he, he was exonerated a number of years ago. There's a conversation between them and the brother you choose along, and you can pick it up anywhere and just sort of jump around, and, and every single page is just full of, of wisdom. And, and, you know, when, when Eddie got out, Paul gave him his house, signed it over and said, like, I've been holding this for you wow. for the 42 years. And, and it's so uh, it's so fucking moving on, on every page of it that uh, all of those, depending on people's taste, like just blew me away in different ways this year and, and are really uh, just things that, that keep going through my mind constantly and, now. And I appreciate that. And. Oh, let me, let me. I was, I was going to try to stop you there. Okay, fine. You, you, you've put a lot on my plate, but I'll, I'll allow you one more. Yeah, I mean, a couple more uh, local <laughs> shout outs. I mean, you know, uh, I'm really excited 
Uh, Jerry Lawrence Brown's book, The Black Butterfly, which which I'd recommend you having him on because he brings a public health perspective to racism in Baltimore. And and I think that's going to be a huge book. Um, I felt super lucky this year that Baltimore Revisited, uh, which is edited by uh, Nicole King and, and Kate Drabinsky and Josh Davis, that looks at a lot of different um, facets of Baltimore from social history perspective was uh, Nicole's my wife. And so... Uh, it, it's been great to sort of be around that book as it was coming to be, but right. um, to now see the, the sort of relevance. And one story I just wanted to mention in there that I thought Please. would be relevant for this that's crazy is that, uh, you know, this isn't new. There's a story that Mike Cassiano brings up in that. Uh, in 1908, when cocaine was first decriminalized, Swan's Law was the law that decriminalized cocaine. Baltimore, the first place, in fact. Um, there was a cop whose name was a sergeant in the police department named uh, William Jenkins, who was arrested and charged for taking and selling cocaine uh, in Baltimore in 1908. And there was a big <laughs> trial. And so, like, this is stuff that we clearly have to deal with. And, and the, th the ways that we're trying to go about dealing with it is just, like, completely not. We're doing the, the same way the that same we were trying thing. to deal with it then. And it just gets worse and worse and worse rather than better. So, like, we have to change that. Well, and uh, in response, it's funny because the book that I was going to recommend, even though it's not out yet, is The Black Butterfly uh, by uh, Lawrence Brown. I had him on the show about a year ago. Uh, he was talking about uh, the book when it wasn't quite finished yet. Um, so definitely agree with you. And it's funny because I bought Baltimore Revisited, but uh, it's somehow, I'm looking at my bookshelf, it must not have made it up to New York from Baltimore uh, and I hadn't put together that Nicole King was your wife. I knew your wife was Nicole. So I'll uh, I'll definitely have to grab that and bring that up here. Um, and the only other thing that I wanted to recommend and uh, is uh, I'm a little bit excited about it. I don't love every single song on it, but uh, Miss Cam's new album, Two-Faced, T-E-W, Two-Faced, that she put out on Bandcamp, uh, has been really vibrant, has had a lot of excitement within Baltimore, um, and, uh, like I said, some of the songs are, are really just blowing me away. And even the ones that I don't love, there are just segments of it that are really resonating. So I'm really excited for her career and what she's doing and want, I'd love if that, uh, album and, and if her performance had a, a, a bigger, uh, national and global stage. And I haven't heard the album, so I'm really, uh, uh, grateful for the wreck and I will, uh, I'll go check it out now. All right, man. Much love and grim solidarity to you, brother. Have you ever right. a night, never eat, though? That's the type of shit to put you on your feet, yo. Ten toes, I'm ten toes down. Didn't fold them hoes, them hoes know now. Got my niggas, them bros, them kinfolk now. And I'm picking up the pace, I can't slow down. Bitch, I'm getting deeper. Thanks again for joining us on Knife at the Gunfight to hear Baynard Woods discuss the January 6th insurrection as well as his uh, recent book, I Got a Monster. The music that you heard was a Miss Cam, the track Headlines, off of her new album, Two-Faced, that can be found on Bandcamp. And as a reminder, your uh, friends and family in Baltimore are grieving right now for the loss of Dante Barksdale. Uh, but I find some comfort in uh, the words of Erica Bridgeford, sort of a, a, a spiritual leader within the city and against violence in recognizing Barksdale's death, but now, now this man's soul is unleashed in a dimension where he will be able to do miraculous things with us in our work we're doing in Baltimore. So to all of Baltimore, particularly Barksdale clan, safe streets, all of his friends and family will hold you in the light. Thank you until next time. I got some niggas really willing, go to war, let it bust The stars be aiming for, they ready to get touched It's a must, for real They wonder how a bitch like me do it, it's more than a pill I'm steady sticking to the script and steady keeping it real Pockets hefty, they ain't missing a meal It's 2020, I ain't missing a meal I just wanna give me a whack Whatever that I put into it, I'm just getting it back Try to beat me, baby, you gotta be quicker than that Gotta be slicker than that I'm the bitch with the sack, kicking shit like a Mac Whoa, said I gotta fucking do it for the West Side Said if you get my picture, gotta catch the best side Said I'll be riding to the motherfucking deadline Said we won't stop until we make the fucking headline